Growing up in Nairobi, there was a family a couple houses down from my family who we were really good friends with. As is common in Kenya, we kids called each other's parents uncle and auntie. My parents were Uncle Jim and Auntie Anne, and their parents were Uncle Josiah and Auntie Sarah. Now, Uncle Josiah is a storyteller by nature, and he has some pretty incredible stories because he was born to a large family in rural Kenya shortly before Kenya gained its independence from Great Britain. Well, as the younger son of this large rural family, he spent his early years playing in the wilderness when he wasn't busy with chores. And luckily for him, his primary chore was tending the goats, which meant he had plenty of time to run off and get into trouble. Well, one day, a few men from the government drove up and they explained to Uncle Josiah's father that the new independent Kenyan government was requiring that each family send at least one child to public school for an education. His father thought for a moment and then said, you can take that one. He's always getting into trouble anyway. And that is how Uncle Josiah became the first person in his family to receive an education. He didn't stop with elementary school though. He became a Christian, continued his studies, and eventually became an Anglican priest. He returned to his village to share the gospel with his family and neighbors, and has since become a leader in his home community. He's brought innovations like cisterns that have helped everyone, as well as founding and building a church there. When I read the story of Samuel anointing David, I can't help but think of Uncle Josiah. Like Uncle Josiah, David was one of many sons, and therefore he did not have a position of any particular honor in his family. Like Uncle Josiah, David, though I'm sure he was loved, was in a certain sense not as important. He had many older brothers, so he could be risked out in the wilderness watching the herds. He wasn't needed closer to home. And he was hardly the first person anyone in his family would have thought would become a leader. Our reading today introduces David, and it comes from later in that same story we read last week. Then our reading was about Israel choosing their first king, Saul. Father David, not to be confused with the king, Father David preached about how the people of Israel were always meant to have a king, but rather than God as their king, they wanted a human king. And that misplaced desire led to a lot of pain and suffering as God had warned them it would. By the time of our reading today, all of that has come to a head. Saul has blatantly disobeyed God, seeking his own ends and benefit rather than serving God faithfully. And so in response to this willful disobedience, God has rejected Saul. And now in our reading, God sends the prophet Samuel to anoint a new king, a replacement for Saul, 
This new king will be different. But that begs the question of why? If God is the true king of Israel and their desire is for a human king, but that desire was wanting the right thing for the wrong reason, why would the new king be any better than Saul? Isn't he just another human king? Isn't it the same thing all over again, just with a new face? The first thing we have to understand is that the difference is not because of any special skills, accomplishments, or position David has gained. There's a reason Samuel doesn't think to look to David for prospective king material. Like I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, David is like Uncle Josiah. He's the youngest of eight sons. He's the one who's left out with the sheep when the rest are sent off with the army. The one who can be risked out in the wilderness with lions and bears. To a certain extent, he was expendable. The last person you would think of to be elevated to be king. So God does not choose David because of his achievements. He also does not choose him because of his appearance. Although the text makes it clear that David is a good-looking young man, it describes him as ruddy with beautiful eyes and handsome. It also has made it clear that his older brothers also look like king material to Samuel. And elsewhere, the Bible talks about Saul looking very kingly in the eyes of the Israelites. So David's good looks and commanding appearance aren't something that sets him apart from the other candidates. God does not choose David based on his appearance. The fact of the matter is, the Bible does not tell us directly why God chooses David. What it does tell us is the words of God to Samuel. The Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. While it would be the height of hubris to assume we know what God thinks or what God thought when the Bible doesn't specifically say, if we compare David to Saul, we catch a glimpse of what God may have seen in David's heart that was so different. As I mentioned, right before this excerpt takes place, Saul blatantly disobeyed God. You see, Saul was leading the Israelites out to battle. God ordered him to kill the king they were going to conquer and to kill all the livestock of that people. When Samuel arrived after the battle, he found that Saul had commanded his army to do neither of those things. Instead, he had kept the king alive as a sort of trophy prisoner, a common practice in that day. And he had kept the best of the livestock for himself and his army. Samuel angrily confronts Saul, but Saul first lies about what he has done, then tries to make excuses, and finally begs Samuel to plead with God on his behalf, apparently so that he can save face in front of his army. Throughout, he repeatedly refers to God as the Lord your God. A small but significant difference from the Lord our God. From this whole series of events, it is clear that Saul's priority is first and foremost his own position. 
his life, his comfort, his control of Israel, all of it. For Saul, God is merely a means to that end. By all appearances, he worships the Lord only as a way of securing his position of power. David, on the other hand, throughout the chapters that come, stands in clear contrast to Saul. Not only is he obedient to the direct commands of God, but he is obedient even when it is not to his apparent benefit. For example, at one point later on, David, or Saul is pursuing David to kill him. And David has this incredible opportunity to get Saul instead. Saul is in a position of vulnerability, literally with his pants down. But rather than seizing an easy, if slightly underhanded, victory, David refuses to kill someone whom God has anointed. Instead, he tries to reconcile with Saul, whose only goal is to kill him. When David does disobey God in his affair with Bathsheba and subsequent murder of her husband, not sins to be taken lightly by any means, God sends a prophet to confront him, kind of reminiscent of Samuel confronting Saul after his disobedience. But instead of lying, making excuses, or trying to save himself as Saul did, David repents profoundly, entering into a deep mourning even when it looks illogical to the people around him. The key difference between Saul and David, perhaps the very difference that God saw in David's heart, is not that David was perfect. The incident with Bathsheba makes that abundantly clear. But that for David, everything was subsumed under his relationship with God. God was not on his priority list, not even the top of his priority list. No, God defined the whole list for David. Everything for David was held together, motivated, guided, and surrounded by his service to God, the true king. What does this mean for you? As you sit here in church in the year 2021, thousands of years after Saul and David. As far as I know, none of you are destined for literal kingship, though if you are, by all means, please let me know. I want to hear that story. But assuming, assuming none of you have had or will have prophets visiting with oil to anoint you as king, or will be called to visit someone and anoint them as king, what does this mean for you? Well, the first thing it means is that God does not work in and through you based on your accomplishments, your skills, or even your position. Just as David was the least likely next king, God delights in using unlikely people you don't have to be the best at any given thing to be part of God's plan. By the same token, though, having it all together does not eliminate you from God's sight. After all, David was good looking. It's neither the one or the other. God does not judge or include us based on external factors, which brings us back to the heart. 
If you have chosen Jesus as your king, and I certainly hope you have, are you following him like Saul or are you following him like David? Are you following God as a means to achieve your own ends, however good those ends might be? Or are you following God as the sovereign king of your life who can lead you into and through any circumstances for his own good purposes? Is God just one priority on your list or does he define the entire list? Are you working hard, recognizing that everything you have comes from God anyway? Or are you working hard so that you can pursue comfort? An empty, vain pursuit in the end, because true comfort only comes from the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. And the comforts of this world are nothing more than painkillers, if you will, numbing us temporarily to the difficulties we face. Are you pouring yourself into your family so that you can worship the one true king together and live joyfully in his presence forever? Or are you pouring yourself into your family so that your family can give you fulfillment? And if so, what will you do if arguments arise or if one of your children or siblings or parents decides to chart a course in life that you simply cannot follow? Are you coming to church to worship God in spirit and in truth? Or are you coming to church to live into family tradition or something else? Worship gives endless meaning to life. But tradition can only take you so far. Each one of these might look very similar on the surface, much like Eliab and David were both handsome young men. But only the one that points you toward the Lord will prove worthwhile in the end. Only the one that leads you deeper into your relationship with God will withstand the storms of this life. Only the one that leads you to serve the King of Kings will prove worth following when all is said and done. And if you haven't chosen Jesus as your King, why do you think the King you have chosen is better? All other kings will slowly consume you and leave you empty, used, and abandoned. Just like Saul's self-service ultimately left him paranoid, friendless, and alone. And if you're on the fence, just know you can't stay there for long. Jesus doesn't offer halfway lordship. You accept his invitation to be part of his kingdom, or you don't. You serve him as your king, or you don't. You can't have one foot in his kingdom. It's not the hokey pokey, one foot in, one foot out. None of that here. It's just not possible. We all serve one king or another. It's part of how we're made as humans. We cannot help but serve, just like we cannot help but worship. You will serve something or someone. And the question for you is, who are you serving? Which king are you choosing? Would you rather be David or Saul? The good news is, Jesus is a king like no other. He is endlessly merciful, endlessly compassionate, and endlessly loving. If you accept him as king, he will help you follow him. You won't have to obey in your own strength because he will give you his. 
Your loyalty won't be measured by your own righteousness because he will give you his. And your reward will not be based on your own merit because he will give you his. David was a man after God's own heart, perhaps simply because he gave his whole heart to God. Whatever happened in his life, he knew who his king was, and he knew that his king was worth more than all the world. Amen.